You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 521 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, December 21st, 2022. And in this episode, we're going to be talking a bit about Christmas and women and politics and theology and not necessarily in that order uh, do I think these topics are important, but... If we get into the specifics, uh, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. Amy Grant and her husband, second husband, Vince Gill, hosting their niece's wedding at their farm. The Taliban closing Afghan universities to women. And also just generally speaking, let's talk a bit about women's beauty standards. And why I want to start out talking about women is for one, because there is so much debate uh, regarding pronouns, regarding gender identity, regarding uh, what is a woman in our day. A woman is whoever wants to identify as a woman. A woman is just whoever says they are a woman or they feel like a woman. Man, they feel like a woman. A woman is increasingly regarded as this pliable, malleable uh, part of society, part of our community, part of our social circle, part of our family or our business. Uh, but what is a woman, right? What is a woman? Well, it being Christmas, we might as well delve into a woman who is uh, very well known, very closely associated with Christmas. And who better to typify, represent a woman who is associated with Christmas in our day than Mariah Carey. Her song, All I Want for Christmas is You, is a incredibly popular song since its debut in 1994. It's been increasingly popular year over year. And there's actually a, a little article here published yesterday at The Daily Wire by Katie Jerkovich explaining just how lucrative this song is. And that's not the main reason why we want to talk about it. Money here is just a stand-in for popularity. But this song, this one song, made more than $1.55 million in 2021 alone. Just last year, $1.55 million. That is incredible. But Mariah Carey, she came out with this back in 1994, and it really wasn't, you know, in my way of thinking back then, this, uh, you know, especially Christmassy song when I was a kid. I didn't think when I heard All I Want for Christmas is You, I didn't think Christmas. I thought, here is a beautiful woman. And I was, by the way, you know, in 1994, I was all of eight years old. And so I probably didn't even really have a keen awareness of who Mariah Carey was for a few years, but she was a big pop star back in the 90s and then early 2000s. 
she was still relevant and uh, she is still relevant, of course, because her song is on the radio all the time and it's in movies, it's in advertisements, it's in everything to do with Christmas uh, for the Christmas season. But I didn't think to myself, first and foremost, this song is about Christmas. I thought to myself, this song is first and foremost about romance. This is a song, uh, you know, written from a woman to her her love, to the man that she loves. And she wants her boyfriend or fiance or husband or whoever to be with her for Christmas. And it, who knows what the context is, right? It's open to interpretation. It's vague enough that you could take it a few different ways. But let's suppose this guy is traveling for business or he works a lot or he's busy or he's distracted or he's working on other things. And what is she really singing? She's singing, I want your attention. I want your time. I want you to be here. I want you to be present for Christmas. That's what I want for Christmas is for you and I to be able to spend time together and enjoy one another. But along the way, I mean, you've got a perhaps lost uh, point with regards to Christmas, right? So we talked in our last episode about 100 years ago in Greeley, what were some of the stories, what was being written in the Greeley Tribune, actually the Greeley Tribune Republican, because as I explained, uh, the Greeley Tribune combined at one point with the Weld County Republican, and then they just kind of hyphenated the name. And now they dropped the Republican part, and it's just the Greeley Tribune. But 100 years ago, the Greeley Tribune, among other things, was advertising for Sears Supply Co. in Greeley and how they had a sale on Christmas trees, for one thing, and also fancy suits for men and tuxedos so that men could meet the expectations of the Christmas season, which is they're going to go to parties. They're going to get together with others with family, with friends, with coworkers, with business associates. They're going to get together with their clubs and their churches and their community, and they're going to have the expectation to dress nicely, to wear nice clothes. But among other things in that is this idea of Christmas having expectations. And what is Christmas actually about? Why are we getting together? Why are we celebrating? Why are we going to buy gifts and presents? Why are we going to have a meal? Why are we going to be taking time off of work? Why? Why? Right? Why is this a holiday? And what I don't want to do in asking this question is I don't want to go the direction of, you know, ranting and raving and playing the curmudgeon about commercialization and secularization. But I do want us to think in an intentional way about how we can blur the lines and forget what the point is. You know, if the point is to buy really great gifts and have everyone uh, happy that we got them exactly what they wanted for Christmas, then we're going to skew a certain way. And that's going to take up a lot of our time and attention. We're going to devote a lot of care to that. If the expectation is, as it was 100 years ago, we're going to go to parties, we're going to get together, we're going to have small talk and snacks or hors d'oeuvres or appetizers and 
a tasteful amount of, uh, you know, some pleasant beverage, maybe not alcohol, but maybe, you know, punch, non-alcoholic punch or cider or something like that that's more traditional. You know, the expectation led to an investment of time, attention, even money, right? So even with regards to buying gifts now, you could say when the expectation is that we're going to buy gifts, that's where it gets surprising that such and such a percentage of Americans are saying they plan on not buying any gifts at all for Christmas, or they plan on very much reducing how much they spend buying gifts, right? But but you're you're measuring the deviation relative the expectation, relative what has come to be normative. And in this song, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, you, I think, get a little bit of an idea of a deviation for one thing and also an expectation all at the same time. And what the deviation would appear to be is that it is not to be assumed that Mariah Carey or you know, all women in our society who want to spend time with the love of their life, uh, the, the, the expectation is not necessarily the rest of the year that they're going to have the attention of their boyfriend or their fiance or their husband. They're not necessarily going to have his attention and have him spending time with them and talking with them and taking them to dinner or taking them to a party. Their expectation is not necessarily that, but Christmas is different. And if you want to get me a really great gift, pay attention, be present, spend time with me, right? Love me, you know, essentially, if you will. Because that's that's the way that the song is written, is please love me. And it's curious, you know, I, I watched the original music video this morning because I read this article and I was like, you know, it's never occurred to me to look back, right? So they're talking about it. Jerkovich here for The Daily Wire is talking about when the song was released and a little bit of the history of the song and how successful it is year over year. But that is to say, it was not necessarily from the jump as successful a song as it is now. It's gotten increasingly successful and popular. And after 25 years, they made a new music video, right? So they had a music video in 1994. They actually had a a few, they had several, but one of them was cut more like a home video of Mariah Carey and her then husband. She's no longer married to that guy uh, at, you know, the, the uh, uh, house decorating it. She's decorating the Christmas tree and singing And then they're going out into a snowy field and playing in the snow and frolicking. And her then husband is dressed up as Santa, bringing her gifts and then leaving on a sleigh like he's Santa Claus. And it's not high end, high production value. You know, the video quality is not very high because it's grainy. It's 1994. But it is, you know, for one thing very at home, right? And for her part, Mariah Carey is alternating between this beautiful young woman who 
is in the prime of life and full of energy and enthusiasm and happiness. And she is enjoying Christmas. And on the other hand, there's a kind of girlish quality to her. Like she's, you know, not a young woman. She's still a girl in some sense when she's going out into the snow and she's having Santa Claus bring her a Christmas present. But there's a domesticity to the movie, to the music video. And then you fast forward and the 25th anniversary is when they shot a new music video for this. You fast forward 2019, uh, that music video is not quite eh, the same. It's not quite the same. Uh, For one, I mean, she's 25 years older, and so she's not a young woman anymore, per se. Uh, You know, 50 years old, she's still, you know, she's still a beautiful woman, but she's not a young woman like she was in 1994. But now she is the siren. Now she is the symbol who is established, who is actually in the department store window as a statue or a cardboard, uh, you know, cutout as part of a larger Christmas display that people walking up and down the street doing their Christmas shopping will see and they will want to go into the store and spend their money buying gifts and various things and maybe fancy suits, maybe, maybe fancy suits and tuxedos and Christmas trees at. But this little girl, in contrast to Mariah Carey, this little girl is looking in the window of the department store and she's mesmerized by what she sees and not just the larger Christmas display, but Mariah Carey herself. And then Mariah Carey comes alive and time goes from standing still to Santa Claus winking at the little girl and Mariah Carey going into a rendition of her very popular song. And that by turn becomes this kind of Rockettes cabaret style dance routine. And you're alternating back and forth between Mariah Carey, the symbol of what a beautiful woman, a successful woman, uh, you know, will achieve in our society. And on the other hand, children dancing and just having fun. And there's a very different quality. Can I just say, there's a very different quality to the kind of dancing that the children are engaged in, which is fun and innocent in a childlike way, and the kind of dancing that Mariah Carey and her backup uh, dancers are dancing, which is you know, what 100 years ago would have been a more rockets um, you know, adult show kind of routine at more of a cabaret type routine and the blending and the mixing of these all together is very curious. I think it's very, very curious that that is the way that the 25 year anniversary of all I want for Christmas was commemorated. I think it's very, very curious. I think it speaks to a kind of losing the plot, and not just with regards to Christmas, but also with regards to the original sentiment, which was, all I want for Christmas is you, and you fast forward 25 years, Mariah Carey, she's had two children. Uh, Her husband, when 
she first, uh, you know, wrote and released this song, Tommy Matola. She had married him the year prior to when the song was released, and they were divorced by 1998. So their marriage lasted five years. Fast forward to 2008. So Mariah Carey is unmarried for 10 years. She gets married to Nick Cannon, who has, I think it's eight or nine children by four or five different women at this point. Mariah Carey is married to Nick Cannon in 2008, and then they get divorced in 2016. So their marriage lasted eight years. So, I mean, I mean I, I'm not trying to be the curmudgeon. I'm not trying to be the cynic here or unpleasant or anything like that. But who does Mariah Carey want for Christmas? In a sense, she wants all of us to keep on playing the song and to keep on, uh, you know, making sure that her royalties come in. And it's just, it's a, it's a very different sentiment that's communicated in the updated version where our standard of what is appropriate attire, I think for a mainstream Christmas song has drifted much more to what is sexy and not to say that the original music video was devoid of that or had nothing of that, but it's like Carl Truman writes in an article for First Things magazine that I shared with you a few months ago. And he was talking about this gay rom-com that ended up bombing at the box office because apparently nobody wanted to see a romantic comedy about gay men. One of the things Carl Truman pointed out is that romance only makes sense when there is a idea of virtue and morality because romance is this kind of song and dance, yes, uh, by which a man who is interested in a woman is trying to woo her and persuade her that uh, they should be together. But why should he have to be subtle about it or polite about it or dignified or restrained or respectful or careful about it if there is no such thing as virtue. And this is where we see not just a coarsening of morals in a vague general sense, but specifically with regards to the relationship of men and women, the coarsening takes the form of, well, let's just get right to me telling you what I want from you and you telling me what I want from you. (laughs) You know, the, the, the coarsening effect is the abolition of romance, and yet we, we want to have the cake and eat it too with regards to still wanting that innocence, still wanting romance, even as we're entirely selfish and, and, and entirely about uh, whatever benefits us. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not romance. That's manipulation. And that they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. So Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. You Basically, you have two elements here that are not necessarily bad, but they don't work just by themselves. I and you. All I want for Christmas is you. And just think about the statement being made there. I'm not trying to overthink. Again, I know you're probably wondering, man, Garrett, you're being kind of a curmudgeon about this. I'm not trying to be a curmudgeon. 
I'm just trying to be intentional. All I want for Christmas is you. I don't want anything else at all. I mean, that, that seems like that's not sustainable. And it's not. In the grand scheme of things, loving God, I want what God's will is for my life. I want to honor God. I want to love God. That's the first and greatest commandment. And then, subordinated to that, love between me and other people is possible because it's put in the proper context. And the expectations are not unhealthy and out of bounds. We're not over-promising and under-delivering in that case. Or if we by accident do, because we're finite creatures or because we're fallible creatures, if we accidentally do over-promise and under-deliver, that relationship with God actually makes grace possible. It makes restoration and reconciliation possible. But apart from the grace of God, when there's a conflict, very often there's either an arm wrestling where one party is happy for a, a little bit and the other person is unhappy. And then they're both unhappy because the first one who was happy is not happy that the other one is unhappy. But there's no mechanism for resolving the dispute. There's no fixed standard of what's right or what's true or what's good or what's beautiful. So they reach an impasse at a certain point. And that's why marriages fail. That's why business partnerships fail. That's why relationships break down. That's why there's conflict and strife because we want what we cannot have, what doesn't rightfully belong to us. And then we're angry and then we're bitter and that comes out. But all I want for Christmas is you, you know, we've got to think bigger picture. At least some of the time, there has to be a stepping back from all I want for Christmas is you to remembering what the point of Christmas actually is. And, you know, an interesting fact I didn't realize because I looked up this song on Spotify to play it at the beginning of this episode. And the album, the 10 songs in this album in their context, because that's how it used to work, because you didn't just listen to single tracks that you liked out of context and throw them into mixes. You used to have to listen to the entire album, or at least put the entire CD or cassette tape in and then, you know, fast forward or just, you know, listen to this song and then this song and then this song, and they all built on each other. You still have that, but young people don't. If they have only ever known the age of iTunes and Spotify Amazon Music, YouTube, they don't necessarily experience albums in their entirety like we did when I was a kid. But this album in its entirety, Merry Christmas is what it's titled, starts with Silent Night, then All I Want for Christmas is You, the one that has been so extremely popular and profitable, yes. Then Oh Holy Night, then a song called Christmas, Baby, Please Come Home. Then a song called Miss You Most at Christmas Time. Then Joy to the World. Then Jesus Born on This Day. Then Santa Claus is Coming to Town. After that, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Gloria in Excelsis Deo. And lastly, Jesus, Oh, What a Wonderful Child. And what's the one song that is still being played and we're still talking about and we're still listening to? And what's the one song that we can see a sign and an indicator of its popularity from in its lucrative quality, in its making Mariah carry a lot of money. 
All I want for Christmas is you. That's the one that had staying power, apparently. Some things to ponder there, I think. There are some things to ponder there. Moving on, though. Speaking of music and speaking of things to ponder and speaking of whether we're remembering Christ and uh, how we relate to God in music and also speaking of women, Amy Grant and her second husband, Vince Gill, are going to be hosting her niece's wedding at their farm. And typically, you might say, oh, well, that's nice. What's so unusual about someone with a nice big property hosting their niece's wedding? Well, the particular thing here is that Amy Grant's niece is a lesbian, and she wants to marry another woman. And so Amy Grant, talking about this publicly, has created quite a stir. And of course, you have the progressive types who are saying, oh, this is great. This is fantastic. That's very forward. That's very progressive. You're on the right side of history, Amy Grant. And then, of course, there's the others, like myself, like Franklin Graham, who are shaking our heads and saying, this is wrong. This is wicked. This is ungodly. This is sinful. It's not just sinful and ungodly that your niece is marrying another woman. It's also sinful and ungodly that you are affirming that and facilitating that. But here's the quote from Amy Grant when questioned about this decision, this very controversial decision, which should not just be shrugged at like, oh, what's the big deal? These are the times we live in. Like, this is the new status quo forever. No, no, not forever. Only for less than a decade has this even been something mainstreamed But the quote from Amy Grant is, honestly, and I quote, from a faith perspective, I do always say, Jesus, you narrowed it down to two things, love God and love each other. I mean, hey, that's pretty simple. Franklin Graham, for his part, has a very appropriate response. He tweets out December 18th, yes, we are to love God and love each other. But if we love God, we will seek to obey his word. Jesus told us, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. God defines what is sin, not us. And his word is clear that homosexuality is sin. For me, loving others also means caring about their souls and where they will spend eternity. It means loving people enough to tell them the truth from the word of God. The authority of God's word is something we can never compromise on. And yet, Amy Grant has. Actually, I would disagree with Franklin Graham. The authority of God's word is something we can compromise on, and very many of us have and are and will continue on. So it is something we can compromise on, but it's a very dangerous thing. We are not actually loving one another well when we do that. We're not even loving ourselves well when we do that. There's not a blessing in compromising on God's word, and God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, so also a woman reaps what she sows. Even a very popular, very famous, very successful woman, you and I, no less, no more, a man reaps what he sows. And here, what is being sown is the currying of favor with the godless, with the wicked, 
basically the opposite of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on it he meditates day and night. Psalm 1 continues on to say, he prospers in everything that he does. He's like a tree that's planted by streams of water, who bears fruit in its season, and the wicked are not so. So why would we try and curry favor with the wicked who are not so, who pass away like chaff? Why would we, unless all we want for Christmas is their approval, and we'll trade, we'll trade approval. To get their approval, we will give them our approval. Meanwhile, we've lost the plot. And there's a theological minimalism here with regards to only looking at loving God and loving each other, but basically throwing out the rest of God's word, throwing out Old Testament and New Testament in favor of a new New Testament, which is actually just whatever we want. Do whatever you will and call it love. It's ungodly and it should be repented of. It's not going to have a good end for us. And it won't change God's mind. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So why are we pretending as though he changed his mind? It's very much like the golden calf incident. As the children of Israel are brought out of Egypt by God, Moses steps away to go and talk with God and receive the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. He comes back to find that the children of Israel are having a wild party. Speaking of parties, a wild party, drinking, carousing, fooling around, and worshiping a golden statue of a calf and saying, this is our God. We would prefer this God. The same attitude, the same mentality, the same spirit is animating this present debate on the side that Amy Grant is expressing. And the result will be the same. The result from those who are not taken in by that ought to be repent, turn away from this. The response from God is going to be, if there is no repentance, if there is no confession and a turning away from sin, the response will be judgment. And unfortunately, not everyone is going to turn. And so the response will be judgment. But it's a very, very curious thing. Here we have Amy Grant, who was this big name in Christian music for decades. I grew up listening to a great deal more of Amy Grant than Mariah Carey. But Amy Grant, she had Christian music. She had this beautiful voice, this sweet disposition, also a beautiful woman. And she got away with far less in terms of even just, there was a controversial bit when she released her second album. She had the top three buttons of her blouse undone. And, oh buddy, you call yourself a Christian recording artist. But then, too, she divorced her first husband. As I understand, as I remember, he had a substance abuse problem. And so she divorced him. And then a year later, she married country music star Vince Gill. And that was a big controversy because what does the Bible say about divorce? What does the Bible say about remarriage? Do you have grounds for divorce, Amy Grant, just because he was addicted to a substance? Also, when did your relationship with Vince Gill start that you married him a mere one year after 
divorcing your first husband. Again, there's a theological minimalism, a doctrinal minimalism, studied ambiguity that seems to be common in far too many places where we say we want our doctrine, we want our theology to be boiled down to the lowest common denominator so that we can approve of whatever we need to in the interest of unity, friendship, approval, we're trading approval. We approve them sinning like this, and they approve us sinning like that. In the interest of selling records, I suppose, selling tickets, maintaining relevance, we claim that the most loving thing for us to do is to ignore God. But we can't love one another well when we ignore God. We just can't. It's not sustainable. It's not what we were made for. But it is a curious thing because our society has a very different attitude towards women than other societies, other cultures. Christianity gets this very unfair characterization as being repressive and tyrannical and misogynistic. It's not fair that women can't do this or can't do that, or they have these expectations placed on them. Well, guess what? It's not just women who have expectations placed on them. It's humanity. And that's on the premise that God created us. But by contrast, consider this story also at the Daily Wire. Daniel Chaitin published yesterday, Taliban closes Afghan universities to women. So consider this. Here in the U.S., we're discussing very politely, very calmly, in a non-threatening way, Amy Grant and her second husband hosting a family member's lesbian wedding. We're talking about Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, which is very self-aware in its trying to be, you know, as sexy as it can get away with, without losing the market for moms who want to play this for their kids and around their kids. It's as sexy as it can get away with. The Taliban, meanwhile, in Afghanistan, with the U.S. under Joe Biden's administration having just ripped the rug out from under our allies there, Western and non-Western allies alike, having given the country back to Al-Qaeda, ISIS, the Taliban, China also, by extension, Afghanistan is telling women, you cannot pursue higher education. No. And the picture, even for this story, is all of these Afghan women wearing black head to toe with very little variation. One of them has kind of a brown patterned headscarf she's wearing as well. One of them has kind of a black and white geometrical patterns sleeve material. You can see their hands holding pencils. You can see their eyes and the upper part of their nose and their forehead. And that's about it. Heads down, looking at papers, pencils or pens in hand, sitting in desks, in rows and columns. About as opposite you can get from what is normative now for women in the United States of America and also in the West more broadly, more generally. And yet to even say, hey, two women should not be celebrated when they want to call their romantic relationship 
in marriage, even to say that, oh, you're literally the Taliban. Am I? I didn't say they can't read a book. I didn't say they can't own a business. I didn't say that they have to have a male chaperone from their family anytime they go out in public. I didn't say they can't uncover their face and and show their face in public, literally. I'm saying two women should not get married. It's shameful. It's sinful. It's wicked. You can't tell the difference between that and what the Taliban's doing to women, really? Very curious. But it, you know, it leads me to this question, right? It, it shouldn't just be these extreme opposites. It, it, it's impossible to have a conversation, a meaningful conversation about such things when all you've got is this binary extreme opposites. You know, if you say, for instance, with regards to Mariah Carey, who's a beautiful woman, even at 52, she's a beautiful woman. She was beautiful in 1994. She's still beautiful in 2022. But if you say with regards to Mariah Carey, hey, you know what? I don't know if the cabaret number is really an appropriate thing to have kids involved in. I don't, I don't know if that's really age appropriate or appropriate at all. If you say that, well, then the immediate response is, oh, you're literally the Taliban, which is unreasonable. And yet we have to formulate some kind of an in-between or moderating perspective to where we say, okay, if it's not this extreme and it's not that extreme, well, then what is it? And what is the way that we know what is correct and what is true and what is good? And yes, what is beautiful? The folks who are terrified of a woman being beautiful and that being obvious or known, I don't know that they are reading all of their Bible as closely as they ought to in a similar way to Amy Grant, although they would take exception to that. But she goes off of what is the first and greatest commandment answer, love God, love others, and then nothing else is relevant to her way of thinking on this question, on this issue. She says, that's pretty simple. And I say, that's too simple, actually. That's too simple. And the Bible would be a extraordinarily short fortune cookie if that's all we needed to know. The Bible's not a fortune cookie. That's a summary. That's a unifying rubric for understanding why God tells us this and that and the other thing and don't do this. And in these circumstances, here's justice. Here's the correct response. Here's the right attitude. Here's the right mindset. Here's why, right? This is the why, which also informs the how and the what. But the folks who actually wouldn't be opposed to us being closer to the Taliban model of so-called modesty for women, they miss that, for one thing, Esther, also known as Hadassah, is born for such a time as this and has a lovely figure and is beautiful and lovely to look at. Abram's wife, Sarai, not for no reason is he afraid that when they're traveling through foreign lands, the king is going to take her from him and kill him if he finds out that Sarai is Abram's wife. She's a good-looking woman. She's a beautiful woman. And it would appear to my way of thinking, to my way of reading it, she is not covered from 
head to toe in a burqa because then he'd have nothing to worry about. And he doesn't say, okay, let's cover her from head to toe in black cloth. That's the solution. Now, his actual solution is not super. It's not, it's not great. If anyone asks, tell them you're my sister, which is half true, but also half a lie. She was his half-sister, but also entirely his wife. And then when that comes out, after she has been taken, the king in question is understandably upset because God would have struck him dead. That's how serious it was. And yet, the solution in that particular anecdote is, besides Abram needing to be more truthful and more honest, more above board, the solution otherwise is, hey, that's someone else's wife, not yours. Hands off. Back up. In the case of Esther and Hadassah, that's a long story, which we don't have time in this episode to delve into in depth. But let me just say for right now, she didn't get into the good graces of the Persian king because she was wearing a burqa. I mean, I'm just going to say that. That is not how she was able to persuade the king that Haman needed to be stopped before he destroyed her people, the Jews. And it's not for no reason that the king ends up hanging Haman by his own gallows for the sport of the crows and the birds of the air. It's not for no reason. It's not because she was a plain woman or trying to beat all not to look beautiful. No, she was beautiful and arguably the most beautiful woman in the land. But there's a three-minute video I watched. This is a curious thing, which kind of like the situation with Esther and Sarai, I don't have time to delve into in depth a great deal more right now based on what else I want to get into and talk about. But there's this three-minute video put out by Bored Panda, or I should say put out by BuzzFeed, but then posted seven years ago at BoredPanda.com. And the title of the page is 3,000 Years of Women's Beauty Standards in a Three-Minute Video. And basically what they're trying to convey is ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, the Han Dynasty in China, the Italian Renaissance, Victorian England, and all the more are we familiar with the past century of changing standards here in America. There have been some rather contrasted and contrasting ideals of what female feminine beauty is or what form it takes what constitutes uh, you know, a woman being beautiful. And they start off this article in a way I don't like. Uh, I don't know if you could call it an article even, but they have a write-up anyways. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but that eye can see things very differently depending on where and when it is. Okay. Um, no, actually, I, I don't know that that's... Correct. In fact, I, I'm quite sure that's not correct. But it is of a piece with the idea that truth is relative. It's of a piece with the idea that goodness is relative. That there is no fixed standard of any of these three because all alike would constrain us 
in ways that we don't want to be constrained. Now, what I'm not saying is that beauty is to be so narrowly defined that only people who look like this, and I'm not just saying women, you know, I wouldn't say that men should be described as beautiful. They shouldn't, actually. But there's a very similar aesthetical uh, principle that applies to men as well. So we say handsome. That's correct. <laughs> a man is handsome. What does handsome actually even mean? Well, it actually just means good looking, right? It just means good looking. Now, if it's said of a man, we're used to that. Sometimes it's said of a woman, that a woman is handsome. That's maybe a little bit more old-fashioned. But that is to say that she is elegant, stately. She has a kind of imposing, authoritative, powerful, regal quality. Not necessarily conventionally pretty, but she's striking, dignified, let's say. But men in particular, we say are handsome. And what we mean by that, that can vary. And yet there's a fixed set of qualities that generally speaking, we pay attention to. And they're important and relevant to determining whether someone is going to be praised. You know, when it takes on a more practical aspect, or when we see these qualities that we describe as beauty or handsomeness, if we see these qualities as part of a conversation, if we take them in context, maybe it's more important to ask the question, for what? Relative what? In proportion to what? So as the BuzzFeed video and the summary at Board Panda points out, at some points in history, women who are more slender have been regarded as the ideal. At other points in history, women who are, uh, let's say, fuller-bodied, <laughs> uh, more plump, have been regarded as the ideal. Also, too, with regards to attire, with regards to what to wear, that's changed over time and depending on where we find ourselves and the culture, in part because what we wear is a form of communication. It's nonverbal communication, but it's a form of communication. Men wearing fancy suits and tuxedos, that's communication. A man wearing an ugly sweater is also communication. And we know that. The Italian Renaissance, very similar to ancient Greece, as well as the postmodern era from the 2000s to today, it is not uncommon for women to be presented either partially or entirely unclothed. At various other times, the expectation has been something much closer to how the Taliban insists that women dress in Afghanistan. The same or a very similar thing applies to men as well. At some times, in some periods, actually a lot of the same periods where this was acceptable or it was tolerated with regards to women, it also was tolerated and not totally shocking with regards to men, that they would be presented either 
partially or completely in the nude, in art or in public. Ancient Greece, for instance, their athletic games, their Olympics, athletes competed entirely in the nude. Their statues, men and women, in ancient Greece, totally nude, as a matter of course. The Renaissance, trying to bring back Greco-Roman art forms, as well as bringing back Greco-Roman philosophy, thinking, science. During the Renaissance, it was very common, very typical for statues and paintings to present the male and female body in the nude. And then you've got everything in between. And it's a changing conversation. But the conversation is changing, not just because people have differing ideas about what is moral or what is virtuous or what is immoral or what is wicked, but also because you have something different being responded to in terms of what do we need. So I think here of athletes in you know a contemporary sense. Look at the star athlete in various sports, and let's just keep on using the Olympics, for instance. The world-class runner does not have the same physique as the world-class weightlifter. The world-class basketball player does not have the same physique as the world-class golfer. And really, the question gets to be, what's your sport and what body type is conducive to playing that sport? The same applies to women as applies to men, although it takes different expression. Usually, in a healthy society, we don't want the men and the women to be indistinguishable because we need men and women to play different positions in the home and in the community and in the church and in government. So they don't look the same. They don't dress the same. They don't look the same. Our standard of what a good-looking woman or a good-looking man looks like is different. I think it's also interesting, and I haven't studied this out, and this is you know for another day when I have studied it out to talk more about, but I for instance, wonder how plentiful food is. Uh, Does that relate? If there's a lot of food and too much food and everybody is obese, maybe skinnier men and women become more the ideal because they're demonstrating self-control, restraint. When, by contrast, there's not enough food and everybody's very skinny, the man or the woman who has some extra pounds on their body is communicating health of a different kind or ability of a different kind or character of a different kind. They are resourceful. They're economical. They're frugal. They are well-connected. They are prosperous. And them not being skinny, like most people, communicates that. They eat well. In other times, Maybe there's a lot of folks being sedentary or depressed or demotivated, discouraged, downcast. And so being cheerful is attractive. Being enthusiastic is attractive. Being athletic, like having a strong, not just a certain shaped body, but having a strong body, maybe that's attractive because 
There's a lot of folks who are just being sedentary and passive. And somebody who's got an athletic physique communicates that they're doing work. They are getting after it. They're being productive. They're not being passive. They're being active. They're living life. Hey, we need that. We need more of that. Let's highlight and emphasize this quality of being physically fit because it speaks to a kind of optimism that a lot of people just don't have, but we need more of to survive, to produce and raise successfully future generations. At other times where everybody's fighting and there's war and the physique is turned to violence and violence is done to it, maybe we say we would rather prefer someone who is slight because we associate strength with oppression. So these are things to think about. These are things to consider. But if we're only considering the question along the lines of cover up, don't cover up, wear these materials, don't wear those materials. This shape is okay. That shape is not okay. This one is to be celebrated. This one is to be discouraged. Well, then I think we're thinking in too limited way about it. When what really should be the focus is for what, right? For what? It's kind of like Mariah Carey's hit song, All I Want for Christmas is You. You know what? We need more to go on than just let's be together for Christmas. Hey, what? what is the point of Christmas? Why are we celebrating Christmas? What's the big idea? Doesn't anybody know what Christmas is all about? Where's our Linus? Setting aside women and beauty, let's talk a bit about politics. And I'll get to these in quicker fashion. We'll go through the politics business quicker than we did the topic of women. Donald Trump, according to three Republican senators, Donald Trump has an electability problem in 2024. A senator who wanted to remain anonymous is quoted by The Hill If Trump was winning or if we were winning Senate seats or got a big majority in the House or got the majority in the Senate, many people would judge former President Trump differently, the senator said. I have those kinds of conversations with constituents frequently, and they say, it's probably time to move on. I like his policies, but I think he killed us in Georgia twice, the senator said. Now, I would agree. I will not say this anonymously. My name is Garrett Ashley Millett, for those of you who just tuned in. I will agree with this. This is accurate. And yet, it is not for no reason this senator is quoted anonymously. Two other senators are quoted by name, one from Wyoming, another one from South Dakota. Mike Rounds and Cynthia Loomis both point out how poorly Trump's backed candidates showed. Now, there's more to it than that. The establishment, I think, left them high and dry. And because he promoted them. They wanted this outcome. They wanted those Republicans who were endorsed by him to lose, and they did not support them. It's the establishment versus the populists led by Donald Trump. But either way, there's going to have to be a recognition among the hardline supporters of Donald Trump. There's going to have to be a recognition that we need somebody who is more disciplined. And by discipline, I don't mean somebody who's willing to compromise with the establishment in a corrupt way. What I mean is somebody who's more careful not to give the establishment characters who are corrupt in both parties 
such an easy time of sidelining legitimate, deep, abiding concerns about the direction of this country and how Republicans have been complicit for quite some time in our country going down the wrong road and taking the rest of the world with us down the wrong road. I like Ron DeSantis. From what I've seen, from what I've heard, he's a better option. He's a better choice. I saw something about Mike Lindell wanting to investigate and research, look into the big win in Florida for DeSantis because it just doesn't add up. uh, That looks fishy to me. If you find something, let us know, Mike Lindell. I like your pillows. We've got two great pillows. You've got a great story. I even agree with you that there was massive, significant, widespread fraud that stole the election from Trump and the Republicans in 2020. I agree with you. But that doesn't mean that DeSantis is a bad guy just because he might be getting more support and more backing among a broad swath of Republicans. It doesn't mean he's a bad guy. If our mindset is anything that has a chance of winning except for Trump is corrupt, well then we're in big trouble. We're in big, big trouble. And I think that is the mindset of a lot of people. It can be true that there was massive widespread fraud in the 2020 election and also true that it's time to move on. And it can also be true that the same folks who stole the election in 2020 are just going to keep on stealing and stealing and stealing, and they will destroy this country. And that is also a possibility, and we should pray that that does not happen. But again, that all can be true, and it can also be true that Trump is not the right guy for 2024. If he wins the nomination, if he's the Republican nominee, I will vote for him, but I hope he's not, and I hope I don't have to. I didn't particularly love his being the best option in 2016 or in 2020, either one. And a lot of Americans feel that way, even if they agree with the substance of his complaints. It's not all just corrupt Republicans and it's not all just cowards. There's a strategic necessity here to not fall into a cult of personality, to not make Trump into an idol. The principles have to be the main thing. What's right, what's true, what's good, what's beautiful even, that has to be the main thing. If Trump is the best one to carry that torch forward, well then, that is what it is. But if he's not, well then he's not. And I think he's not. Moving on, I'm going to play a clip for you from Jack Posobiec, independent journalist, very much on the Trump train, but fiery guy. He's got some interesting things to say on a regular basis. Here is him at a Turning Point USA event here very recently talking about the deep state and the Twitter files and where do we go from here? Take a listen. They sat there, they censored our information. We've seen this in the polling, it would have changed the election. But here's the thing. He's not just giving us the emails and the messages the phone calls, the meetings, what he's giving us is a roadmap to take down the entire deep state because we're going to take these files and we're going to apply it to Google and we're going to apply it to Wikipedia and we're going to apply it to Meta and Facebook and Instagram. We're going to apply it all across Silicon Valley. And then we're going to take those meetings and we're going to apply it to the FBI and the CIA and the Department of Homeland Security and the Federal Reserve. And we're going to take all of them. And we will 
We will. We will go to them and we will say no. We will say no. We will say no. Because let me tell you something, and I say this as a Catholic, I think it's time to launch an inquisition on them. It's an inquisition on them. And we're going to root these demons out completely and entirely. Every last one of them. And only by doing so, only by doing so, will we be able to take our country back. Because here's how it goes, folks. For every lie they tell, we're going to get in their face and yell two truths. For every time they come to us for, and cancel one of our innocent friends, one of our people, we're going to expose 10 of them. And for every new religion and every cult, paganist, ideology that they prop up and they say, you have to worship this, we're going to go right in their face and we're going to say, Christ is king. Christ is king. Christ is king. So, first of all, some things I agree with. <laughs> Christ is king. Yes. Absolutely. Second thing I agree with here. We should assume that everything we're finding out about the way that the Democratic National Convention and the Biden team specifically and the FBI and as of the most recent Twitter files, uh, the Pentagon even, worked with Twitter is also true with regards to the other big tech giants, Google and Facebook specifically, especially. We know that TikTok is increasingly a concern because TikTok is owned by China. And when I say that, I don't mean that the Chinese Communist Party directly owns, like their name is on the documents, but you have to understand that TikTok is a subsidiary of a parent company, which is Chinese, and that everything that happens in China in a big way happens with the blessing or the permission or the behest of the Chinese Communist Party. Unless God himself is intervening from a human standpoint, only the Chinese Communist Party calls the shots. That goes for individual citizens, no matter how wealthy they are, no matter how influential they are. You could be the richest man in China, and if you criticize the CCP, if you disagree with it, if you don't give it exactly what it wants, if you make it feel threatened, then you disappear. You're gone. Everything is lost. Maybe nobody ever hears from you again. And so TikTok is a proxy for the Chinese Communist Party. If you've got it on your phone, get it off your phone. <laughs> if your kids have it on their phone, your kids need to get it off their phone. <laughs> it is bad news bears. Well, also too, though, American tech giants work at the behest of, with the blessing of, intelligence agencies here in the U.S. sometimes. <laughs> Twitter lied to Congress and said, no, we don't ever do that. We work very hard to identify and put a stop to propagandist efforts on our platform. And then it comes out that the Pentagon had dozens of accounts known 
to Twitter, which were peddling propaganda, which were running a psychological operation, a psyop in the Muslim world. Twitter knew and they made it happen. They facilitated it. But Jack Posobiec is right that everything we're finding out about Twitter, we need to assume is also relevant to Google and to Facebook and YouTube and the rest. Meta, its subsidiaries, Facebook and Instagram, absolutely have the same kinds of things going on internally and have had the same kinds of things going on for years. And this is relevant because these are echo chambers for the new morality, the new religion, the new worldview. This is nudge theory. This is brainwashing. We turn down the volume on the folks who are communicating the old social imaginary, and we turn up the volume on the folks who are friendly to our agenda, who will communicate the new social imaginary. He's right about that. Jack Posobiec is right about that. However, the narrative is now going to shift and is shifting before our eyes from the deep state is not a thing, you're a conspiracy theorist, to of course the deep state is a thing, but either A, it's a good thing, or B, there's nothing we can do about it. This has been the case with issue after issue, specific issue after specific issue. Take, for instance, the gay marriage debate seven years ago and the Christian conservatives in particular who said, if you give the left this, the next thing will be normalizing pedophilia. The next thing will be normalizing bestiality and incest. And what do we find? Exactly that. Increasingly, all ages, drag shows, explicit sexual in nature, normalizing the sexualization of children, grooming children in our public schools. If you object, then even the superintendent here in Greeley's school district will, at a school board, call your objections, your official written complaints about almost 300 books, which contain graphic sexual content in the school library, not the general public library, but the school library, the official complaints to that will be, and were very recently, called trash. Let's adjourn so that we can clean up this trash, because that's the attitude. That's the contempt that the folks who are part of this larger statist, progressive, secular, leftist, utopian, social imaginary push, that's the contempt they have for Christian conservatives in particular. So Jack Posobiec is channeling, in response, a rather medieval prescription, a rather medieval response. You know what we need, he says? We need another inquisition. We need to go after these people. We need to root out these demons from our government. The deep state is real. We see that now. There's no denying it. But the conversation will shift among conservatives, among people who are uncomfortable with this, among people who don't like it, or they say to it, they say they don't like it. And you know what they'll sing is all I want for Christmas is you, the equivalent, politically speaking. All I want for Christmas is you. And they're not giving up on wanting favor with the wicked. As much as depends on you, strive to live peaceably with all men is taken in the wrong direction 
by these types, in my view, very similar to how Amy Grant, for instance, is taking the first and greatest commandment and the second that is like it and being reductionistic about the whole counsel of God to where there is no specificity. On the one hand, you do have the Franklin Graham types. You do have the Jack Posobiec types who are saying, no, no, our principles have specifics. When the rubber meets the road, our principles are not just abstract ideas that you can wave off to satisfy your own lust, to satisfy your own ambition, to give yourself a pass or to give others a pass so that they will give you a pass. But on the other hand, you're going to have the David Frenches and you're going to have the apologists who, once the jig is up, once there's no denying that this and this and this and this actually turned out to be true and that's a real thing and I wasn't crazy and I wasn't making it up, see, here's the receipts, they'll say, well, yeah, of course, right? As if they weren't denying it (laughs) for years up to this point, waving you off, dismissing you, because the underlying commitment is they want friendship with the world. They want to cut a deal. There have been these kinds here in the United States since before the United States was even its own independent country. The majority weren't necessarily diehard patriots when the 13 colonies decided to break away from England because rights as Englishmen were being trampled on. They were being disenfranchised. They and their families were being treated as slaves, in a sense, underlings, in a sense. Second-class citizens, to put it mildly. There were patriots who were very energetic, and there were loyalists who said, however bad it gets, we have to toe the party line. We have to stay the course. We have to maintain the status quo. And then in between, you had lots of people who... They would wait and see how this played out, and they would wait until something personally impacted them, until they had a tragedy that directly affected them, and then they would decide which way to go. And some concluded with the loyalists, and they moved up to Canada. Others concluded with the patriots and said, you know what? This has just got to stop, and if the quickest way to make it stop is to back the energetic patriots who want American independence— who want the United States of America to be self-existent under God, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. If the quickest way for us to have peace and for things to return to a kind of normalcy where I can just focus on my own private life again, my own private business again, the quickest way is to back the patriots. Well, then that's what we're going to do. And there there are always, there are always in every time, in every place, in every culture, a significant share of the people who are that way. This is why terrorism works. This is why psyops work is because the majority are not necessarily all about the principles and they're not necessarily all about what is true, what is right, what is good. According to God, they're primarily concerned with their own private business. And in some sense, they ought to be. And in another sense, that can get to be very short-sighted, and it can actually undermine your own personal business. That's why when it actually impacts you is when you start to reevaluate, okay, maybe I haven't paid enough attention to this. Maybe I should be watching closer. Maybe I should get involved 
because now it is my business. You know, think of the movie The Patriot, for instance. You have this fictional character, Benjamin Martin, who's got this big family. His wife has passed away several years ago, so he's just raising this family by himself. And he does not want war with England because he's been in war. He's fought. It does not have the romantic appeal to him that it does to the young men whose heads are filled with visions of glory. What changes his mind, what gets him invested personally in fighting, in leading, in mustering troops, is when his own son is killed. Okay, now this is personal. Now I've got to get involved. Now I've got to deal with this. Now I've got to fight because I either fight or I risk the same thing that happened to my one son happening to all my children. And there's a case that could be made that this is part of why Elon Musk, this might even be the main reason why Elon Musk is going after the woke mind virus, as he calls it, is that his own daughter wanted to be emancipated from him and has become transgendered. She was captivated by this philosophy, by this worldview, and then there was no getting through to her. There was no reasoning with her. There was no talking her out of it. It was like she had been taken captive. And then it affects him personally, and then his perspective changes. This has also been the case, as I've talked before, about persuasive technology and Silicon Valley executives, very, very smart people, highly educated, very knowledgeable about how to make the tech work to make money and to accomplish objectives, to change behavior is the big idea of persuasive technology. It is not just to give you a handy tool to use for your benefit. It is to give the ability to wealthy, powerful people to turn you into a tool to accomplish their objectives. If you're going to use it, you have to know that so that you use it and it doesn't use you. But a lot of these executives, they start out, they get involved, and it's some time that they are running these companies, making these companies wealthy, successful, powerful, influential, what they are today before they get married and have children of their own. And then when they have children of their own, it's like a wake-up call because they realize, what in the world are we doing I wouldn't want this being done to my child. I don't want my child having a smartphone. I don't want my child playing these video games. I don't want my child watching that TV show. What are we doing? And then they're out, right? Then they're out. And next thing you know, they're advocating for more consideration of the cost. It is not all profit. It is not all sunny side up, only good things. There's a cost. There's a trade-off. There's a human cost they start asking the question after a fashion, what does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit his or her soul? And the majority of Americans who vote, who get engaged, who pay attention or don't, who formulate a perspective on these things, the majority of Americans have not enough a sense that the cost of going along with this, acquiescing, being passive, is greater than the cost of standing up to it. And so long as that's the case, I'm afraid that what Jack Posobiec is saying is naive. This is like the dialogue back and forth between John Adams and Ben Franklin in the HBO adaptation of 
David McCulloch's book, Ben Franklin tells John Adams at one point, when they're in the midst of a heated argument, politics is the art of the possible. In some sense, it's a seduction. But just like with the topic of beauty, just like with the topic of women in general, if you put all of these elements in the context of actually loving God first and doing it in the way that Franklin Graham rightly points out, Jesus says we must, God says we must, Old Testament, New Testament, by obeying God's commandments, by obeying Jesus' commandments, you put it in that context and all of a sudden it goes from being a seduction in an immoral, godless, wicked way to being more like romance, actually. Something that can be wholesome and healthy and sustainable. It actually is not enough to point out that the deep state is a thing, that it exists. You know, think of a woman in an abusive relationship with her boyfriend. He's verbally abusive, he's physically abusive, and you try to tell her he's abusive. She knows. She knows he's abusive. She will keep going back to him and she will stay with him so long as she's done the cost-benefit, however skewed, and she sees the cost of leaving him as higher than the cost of staying with him. So then what has to be done is you have to communicate that the cost of staying is actually higher than the cost of leaving. The cost of maintaining this status quo is way too expensive. We can't afford it. And you have to start putting details to paper on the or else. What else can we do? What else is an option? How do you get away from him? And where do you go? Right? You can't just get away. You have to be somewhere. And where are you going to be that's going to be safer, healthier, more beneficial? That needs to be flushed out. And this is part of the reason why you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily on board with everything that is being called Christian nationalism these days, but that's just it. That is also a kind of psyop. It's dishonest to put everybody who starts talking about Christian morality or Judeo-Christian values, which I don't like that phrase, but who starts talking about the Christian worldview informed by God's word, coming from a place of fearing God, trusting God, loving God, trusting that God rewards those who faithfully obey him, trust in him, honor him, putting everybody who's even alluding to that being a value or something worth pursuing, something worth defending, putting everybody in that same category. You know what? If you're going to put us all in that category, you're going to paint with broad brushes like that, well, I'm not going to waste my time trying to argue the minutia of why you're wrong because you're not being genuine. You don't actually want to know truth. You want to get power and to maintain power. And now what I think is probably for the best is if we flesh out, if it were possible for us to be a more Christian nation, would that be a more blessed and prosperous and good place to be? Yes, I think so. Also, what would that look like and how do we get there? It's like Andrew Clavin's question to Stephen Wolf when he had him on his program to talk about the case for Christian nationalism, Stephen Wolf's book. He says at one point, just very, very point blank, like a Ben Franklin of our day is Andrew Clavin. He says, you know, forgive me. I just, I can't see us getting to what you're talking about from where we're at. I mean, we're, we are so far removed from that. It just doesn't even seem possible. 
The debate there is not actually over whether it's good, whether it's desirable. The debate is, can we actually get there from where we're at? And if that answer is never given, if that question is never answered, it's always theoretical, as Stephen Wolf admits. He's a theoretician. He's not a practical guy necessarily where these things are concerned. He has no idea. I have no idea what the answer is to that question. If that is all we ever get, well, then we will keep on staying with the abusive boyfriend, so to speak, in terms of our government and our corrupt media and our corrupt schools. We will keep on staying with the abusive significant other because what we actually really want is for things to be as good as they possibly can be. If as bad as it is, this is as good as we can imagine it being right now practically. Maybe that changes at some point. We don't know. Who knows? If this is as good as we can imagine it getting, and this is as good as we think we deserve or can do, well, this is where we're going to be. To make this point maybe a little bit more clearly, I'm going to play a bit of sound here, a bit of audio from a video taken in 1975. It was an interview that Meet the Press did with then-Senator Frank Church regarding our intelligence community here in the U.S. and its technological capabilities and its willingness to leverage that technology in an underhanded way. This is two minutes, 22 seconds of very relevant commentary from Senator Frank Church. Take a listen. But let me tell you this. In the need to develop a capacity to know what potential enemies are doing, the United States government has perfected a technological capability that enables us to monitor the messages that go through the air. Uh, these messages uh, are between ships at sea. They could be between units, uh, military units in the field. We have a very extensive capability of intercepting messages wherever they may be in the airwaves. Now, that is necessary and important to the United States as we look abroad at enemies or potential enemies. We must know. At the same time, that capability at any time could be turned around on the American people. And no American would have any privacy left, such as the capability to monitor everything, telephone conversations, telegrams, it doesn't matter. There would be no place to hide. If this government ever became a tyranny, if a dictator ever took charge in this country, the technological capacity that the intelligence community has given the government could enable it to impose total tyranny. And there would be no way to fight back because the most careful effort to combine together in resistance to the government, no matter how privately it was done, is within the reach of the government to know. Such is the capability of this technology. Now, why is this investigation important? I'll tell you why. Because I don't want to see this country ever go across the bridge. I know the capacity that is there to make tyranny total in America. 
And we must see to it that this agency and all agencies that possess this technology operate within the law and under proper supervision so that we never cross over that abyss. There, that's the abyss from which there is no return. Man, <clears throat> there's some sobering commentary. There is some sobering observation as to the state of things in 1975, almost 50 years ago. We're right on the verge of 2023. That means we're two years from 50. And he was right because these capabilities can and were expected to and were and are and will continue to be used domestically with regards to political opponents, with regards to, let's say, even just common citizens who have perspectives, opinions, viewpoints, beliefs, which are seen as problematic, which are seen as competing with what the folks who have these tools at their disposal hold to. So now we increasingly know not just that these tools, these surveillance tools can be used, could be developed and implemented here, but that they have been. And likely we don't know the full extent. Some speculate so long as any amount of how these have been used domestically by our intelligence agencies, political parties, our government, bureaucracies, so long as we are still speculating, we are not putting a stop to it. And let me just say again, 50 years on, the key decider is whether we have an or else that is more beneficial and less costly, relatively speaking. In the absence of that, we will keep on like this and it will get worse. The original idea of our government was that constraint was needed for those with government authority because men are fallible creatures and they have a sinful nature. If there was no sinful nature, well, then we wouldn't need a criminal justice system. We wouldn't need laws that have penalties attached to them to discourage, dissuade, disincentivize. That's all cost benefit. But our government also, just like with the governed, if it has no disincentives, if it has no consequences of a negative Nature, when it behaves badly, will keep on behaving badly and will become still more corrupt if it is corrupt. The corrupt and the ruthless will destroy anyone they perceive to be a threat. And in the end, they will destroy themselves and all those who are following them and submitting to this and affirming it and facilitating it. So the stakes are very high, but... If there's no or else, what do people do? Well, they just keep on maintaining it. They do nothing, most of them, or if they do something, they do only what will be approved of by those who are corrupt. You know, speaking again of Esther, consider the case of Haman. 
Haman is this corrupt guy who has a lot of power in Persia, and he also envies what the Jews possess, and he wants to take what the Jews possess, and he wants to do awful things to the Jews. He's a corrupt man. He's an evil man, and he wants to use the power of the government, the Persian government, to get what he wants from the Jews, whether that is taking things from them or that is doing things to them. He is stopped when Esther actually takes quite a lot of risk in making her appeal to the king. That could have gone very differently for her to speak out. It was common knowledge that the previous queen consort had been dismissed for displeasing the king. So if Esther all of a sudden dismissed and known to be a Jew, did not succeed in getting Haman stopped, well then, Haman would have done who knows what to Esther, or the forces he was trying to unleash on the Jews would have done who knows what to Esther. It was a very scary thing. It was a very brave thing that she did, but it was a faithful thing, and God used it. Moving on, again, with regards to the Twitter files, the FBI paid Twitter millions of dollars, basically, to subcontract depriving Americans of their constitutional rights. And we may not know in every case who was thought to be guilty of what or plotting this other thing. And yet what we do know is that the FBI was putting American moms and dads on terrorist watch lists because they were showing up at school board meetings objecting to boys being allowed to use the girls' bathrooms and locker rooms with their daughters, their sons being encouraged to become transgendered or homosexual, their sons and daughters, if they were people of color, being taught to hate America and hate white people in particular because of CRT, their sons and their daughters, if they were white, being taught to hate themselves because America is this racist country and Howard Zinn is the storyteller we're going to present you with. The FBI has got to have a reckoning. And a lot of us are afraid to say that, lest something bad happen to us. But that right there, that is actually the confirmation that these are not all good people. These are not all public servants. These are not all trustworthy, upstanding characters. There's a lot of corruption that needs cleaned up. And the only way I see for there being the political will, the gumption, the courage to stand up to it is if we are trusting to God and we're looking to God's standard of what is true and what is good. And we're chiefly concerned with fearing God, not fearing man who can only kill the body and then has nothing more he can do to us. If you want to call that Christian nationalism, I guess be my guest. Go right ahead. Whatever you call that, that is what I read in my Bible as being correct and godly and God-honoring and blessed. And everything else is just a slippery slope towards defeat, impoverishment, oppression, slavery, destruction. Now, lastly here, speaking of theology, and this actually, this is where we'll camp out for what little time we've got left because I should run here shortly. 
But I don't want to leave you without having touched on a podcast that was sent to me by my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, from Reformed Forum. And this episode in particular was titled Ecumenism and Intolerance. And the one giving the instruction and explanation and overview of this topic is a certain Daryl G. Hart. And I'll put a link in this podcast episode's description so you can go check out this longer episode. It's about 30 minutes long. But a couple of things to consider that we might want to uh, pause for on all sides of this debate. Not just the political debate, but more importantly, the theological debate. Because the theological debate is upstream of the political reality. Because theology is upstream of culture, culture is upstream of politics. That is to say, too, if our politics is way out of order and chaotic and upsetting and oppressive and dysfunctional, well, that speaks to theology being broken, actually. So Daryl G. Hart, he talks about ecumenism and intolerance, and he spends a good deal of his time going into this story that introduces us to J. Gresham Machen. Now, Machen, if you haven't read his book yet, you should. He was a professor of theology at Princeton Theological Seminary and wrote Christianity and Liberalism, which is a long-form repudiation of liberal theology. Liberal theology is upstream of the liberal agenda in the United States of America more broadly, more generally. Kind of like Fabian socialism, kind of like uh, you know cultural Marxism, liberal theology is trying to go to the Bible and tweak and adjust, downplay and amplify whatever needs to be in order to justify the leftist agenda, essentially. But in order to take voters captive and to harness them to promote the democratic agenda or the leftist agenda or the liberal agenda, theological arguments needed to be made for serious church people, for pastors, for seminary professors, for people high up in denominations who would be in charge of making decisions about who to support and who to send as missionaries or as pastors or as bishops or as presbyters or what have you. And so J. Gresham Machen, I know from Christianity and liberalism. But allow me to read the opening paragraph for the Wikipedia entry for Machen. John Gresham Machen, that's his full name, 1881 to 1937, was an American Presbyterian New Testament scholar and educator in the early 20th century. He was the professor of New Testament at Princeton Seminary between 1906 and 1929 and led a revolt against modernist theology at Princeton and formed Westminster Theological Seminary as a more orthodox alternative. As the Northern Presbyterian Church continued to reject conservative attempts, to enforce faithfulness to the Westminster Confession, 
Machen led a small group of conservatives out of the church to form the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. When the Northern Presbyterian Church, PCUSA, rejected his arguments during the mid-1920s and decided to reorganize Princeton Seminary to create a liberal school, Machen took the lead in founding Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia in 1929, where he taught New Testament until his death. He continued opposition during the 1930s to liberalism in his denomination's foreign missions agencies led to the creation of a new organization, the Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions, 1933. The trial, conviction, and suspension from the ministry of independent board members, including Machen, in 1935 and 1936, provided the rationale for the formation in 1936 of the OPC. So here you've got this guy, and I'm not going to give you the full summary. I'm not going to repeat everything that Daryl Hart has to say in his Reformed Forum podcast episode, but a couple of highlights, a couple of highlights, a kind of Federation of American Presbyterians was proposed that would have been very similar to the U.S. federal government. But the doctrinal statement was objectionable on the grounds that there was nothing distinctly or historically Christian about it. Doctrinal purity was softened. And basically, the lowest common denominator was prioritized doctrinally, theologically, so as to maximize unity. And as Daryl Hart points out, this was not just something coming out of a concern about World War I and a need for greater unity among the nations. This also, in an American context, was motivated by the Civil War is a theological crisis. More on that you can find out reading Mark Knoll's book by the same name. And basically, the Civil War was competing ways of reading the Bible and understanding our relationship to God and one another as a result that eventually built up into irreconcilable differences. The North and the South read the same Bible, quoted it often, in their letters, in their correspondence, in their conversation, to justify their decisions. They prayed to the same God, and yet disagreed so vehemently on the question of slavery in particular that they fought an extraordinarily bloody and destructive war to see who would be right and who would be able to carry their vision forward. Well, that was a very traumatizing thing. The lead-up to it, the actual thing in the Civil War— and then the aftermath. And Reconstruction, I would say, makes a lot of sense as far as a source for trying to water down theology. How do we bury this hatchet? How do we reconcile our differences? Well, let's just deny that any of those differences are all that important. And let's just keep on denying that differences are important with more and more and more things until we arrive at some things that we can all agree about. In the name of Christian unity, everything else has to be sacrificed so that we can agree. One of the ways that this found expression was in liberal theology being elevated and the conservative response being what was denounced. So conservatives saying, well, that's not true. They were doing the transgressive thing. They were being the troublemakers. They were being unloving, 
very similar to what the mentality of Christians today is when they compromise on gay marriage or the abortion question or the size and scope of government, the welfare state, et cetera, et cetera, to have a conservative response and say, that is not theologically sound. That was denounced and pushed out. And Machen became something of an outcast. Again, this is upstream of the political reality. And it makes a lot of sense of the push in our day to normalize everything and to simplify, oversimplify God's word to just the first and greatest commandment and the second that's like it. And to forget what Franklin Graham is pointing out, for instance. If we love God, we'll keep his commandments. If we love Jesus, we'll keep his commandments. If we say that we have no sin, we call God a liar. The truth is not in us. We stand condemned in our sins. Oh, ho, ho, you can't say that. That is objectionable. That is narrow-minded. That's ignorant. That is the wrong side of history. That's not what Christ would did, even if it was exactly what he did and what he said, particularly where he always quotes favorably the scriptures. You've heard that it was said, but I say unto you, is never a, hey, these passages are not true anymore. They were true, but now they're not. You've heard that it was said is always in relation to a rabbinical tradition that's been built up around the interpretation of God's law. But I say to you, and now I clarify that this is the point of this command. This is what God desires. But for a specific case study, let's go back to Cameron Bertuzzi of Capturing Christianity and his recent announcement that he was going to join the Roman Catholic Church. Gavin Ortland did a response here a few weeks ago, and I have been watching a little bit of that this morning, making my way through it. I'm not all the way through, but so far, I just, I really appreciate Gavin Ortland's way of handling the topic, approaching the topic. He's got a really great delivery. He's very well-spoken, very clear and uh, concise, very gracious, but also firm on what needs to be shored up. His encouragement regarding Cameron Bertuzzi converting to Roman Catholicism is study classical Protestantism. I was really struck, and I was talking back and forth with JP about this, in Cameron Bertuzzi sitting down with Pints with Aquinas host, Matt Frud. One of the things that really struck us both was how Bertuzzi, in explaining his journey, he says he started out growing up in a much more Pentecostal, charismatic church. And then as he got older, he got more and more interested in studying philosophy and theology. But his goal with capturing Christianity was to convey a mere Christianity explanation. C.S. Lewis would be proud. That's what our goal is. Now, one of the problems that can come with that is you become a doctrinal minimalist to where doctrine is not important so that we can have unity and we oversimplify. And if you're only reading and studying with a view to how do we boil this down to the simplest form, but we leave some things out that actually connect 
these truths together in a meaningful way, in a practical way, in a stable way, well, then you can actually, at a certain point, you can come to the kind of conclusion that Cameron Bertuzzi did when he encountered Roman Catholic theology, Roman Catholic philosophy, Roman Catholic art. That is, by contrast, Protestantism looks pretty light. It looks pretty shallow. It looks pretty empty, like it's fluff and stuff. Now, wait a second. I think what Gavin Ortland is getting at, this is a very important point. This is a very important point. Study classical Protestantism, he says. Don't confuse contemporary expressions of Protestantism with the Protestant tradition, in part because there is a common push in the past century to pursue exactly what Bertuzzi was pursuing. It's not for no reason that he was pursuing this mere Christianity approach to theology. There's an anxiety that we are being conditioned to feel with the overemphasis on Christian unity at the expense of doctrinal faithfulness, being biblical. In the interest of being biblical on the question of unity, we have to be unbiblical on everything else, it would seem. Everything else is up for debate. Everything else is up for grabs. But then comes in the Roman Catholic Church, and by contrast, if they're saying, no, we're not that way. Well, now you've got a decision to make, and that's exactly how Cameron Bertuzzi saw it, and that's how far too many see it, is on the one hand, they see this wishy-washy, evangelifish, as Doug Wilson would say, approach to doing theology, and on the other hand, you see this robust, concrete, fleshed-out, long-form, and dogmatic position being taken on this issue, this issue, this issue, this issue, you will submit to the teaching of the Catholic Church on transubstantiation, on the vicar of Christ, as he's called, on the papacy. You will submit to the teaching of the church. You will, you will, you will. And Bertuzzi even admits, yeah, that's really hard for me. Boy, that's probably the most uncomfortable thing is I like just believing whatever I want to believe, and I can do that in Protestantism. Ho, 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 wait, hold on. To Gavin Ortland's point, and actually he's an interesting one to be making this point, given that he wrote Finding the Right Hills to Die On, study classical Protestantism. Study the historical characters of the Reformation, and you will find a lot more robust arguments about why the Protestant position is this, and why maybe you didn't know that because it's been watered down so much in the interest of unity in the interest of having a big tent evangelical movement. Again, Carl Truman, he's got a great response to Mark Knoll's progressive diatribe against fundamentalists when he writes the real scandal of the evangelical mind. He says the real scandal of the evangelical mind is not, as Mark Knoll says, that there's not much of an evangelical mind. The real scandal is there's not much of an evangelical What is an evangelical? We don't agree about what the evangelion is. We don't agree about the good news. We don't agree about the gospel. So how can we (laughs) all be unified? It's peace, peace when there is no peace, really. The blind leading the blind, and they both fall into a pit. And it doesn't mean that Rome is right. Rome is wrong. And at the same time, 
much of what we've come to associate with the expression of Protestant Christian faith in America is also wrong. And what I mean by that is not always necessarily that what they're saying is not true, but it's not the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God. It's a lot of funny stories and anecdotes that are thrown in for entertainment value and to make this approachable instead of fearsome or imposing or authoritative, actually. Because authority, once that comes into the equation, it leads to intolerance. And that's why Daryl G. Hart's podcast episode puts ecumenism and intolerance together because they are two very different responses to authority, biblical authority, God's authority. The Catholic Counter-Reformation in comparison to the Protestant Reformation in all its forms, these are disagreements about authority. Who has it? How did they get it? How are they allowed to exercise it? And again, 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 this is upstream of political philosophy for very obvious reasons, because that is the question of politics. Who has authority? How do they get it? And what are they allowed to do with it? And again, bringing this full circle, this is why if we want it to last, our attitude cannot be all I want for Christmas is you, not that there's something wrong with you wanting to spend time with your loved one, humanly speaking. But for it to last longer than five years, longer than eight years, for it to last, the first and greatest commandment has to be the first and greatest commandment. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I've got to run. More on all these topics, I'm sure, in the days, weeks, months, Lord willing, years to come. But... For now, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.